This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today's episode is special. Why, you might ask? Because today's episode marks my 100th episode on the NBN. To celebrate, I'm chopping it up with my good brother, Dr. Marcus Nevius, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at the University of Rhode Island. In today's convo, brother Dr. Nevius and I discuss why he chose to become a historian, his route to become a scholar, a marinage and slave resistance, the great Dr. Leslie Alexander, and much, much more. Enjoy MBN interview number 100, family. Brother Nevius, brother Nevius, man, I am so happy to have you on here on New Books in African American Studies, man. And I just want to say it's an honor to have you on for my 100th episode. Um, as we spoke before, did not think um, I would be here uh, 100 episodes in. It was just to try to get into a PhD program, and now I'm in my second. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, man. So, so I'm really happy to have you on the podcast today, man. How you feeling? Uh, I'm, I'm good, bro. This is, this is a special honor and a special treat, not only because it's uh, the 100th uh, episode that you're recording, and as you told me in our conversation just before we hopped on, you're five years in, so you're kind of an OG. Um, yes, sir. It's really a, a special honor to be able to engage you in this space uh, because you, you are really uh, one of the best podcast interviewers, uh, so... Truly, thank you for this this opportunity. Thank you, thank you, brother. Yeah, man. So, so you know, as you've probably heard in some of my other interviews, man, we uh, we always love to learn a bit about um, the the scholars that we have on. And so, um, you know, heard a little bit of my biography of you know this being one hundred. Um, so, so to turn the mic to you, my brother, uh, why did you ultimately decide to become a historian? Man. Um... I ultimately decided to become an historian because I was attending uh, an historically black university uh, down in Durham, North Carolina, North Carolina Central University. Uh, And the teacher scholars there on faculty were role models of a different sort. Um, I'm originally from New Brunswick, New Jersey. My family had been in central New Jersey, has been, frankly, in central New Jersey for four or five generations at this point. I've lost count. But we are not a family of scholars who have made their stripes in the academy, so to speak. We're a family of readers. We're a family of people who engage in the public space with uh, different ideas that 
um, are generally debated in public, black resistance, black power, things of that nature. Uh, but when I got into my first undergraduate courses at North Carolina Central, um, the first lecture based course, especially black resistance, uh, black experience, excuse me, um, my perspective shifted. Here I was, this kid out of New Brunswick who, in 2001, I'll date myself, it's fine, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> was in Durham and thought that he was going to pursue journalism. And this was, of course, because my mother and I used to watch the evening news in the New York metropolitan area every night. And she used to often say, that you could do that. You could be in front of the camera giving the reports from various parts of the metropolitan area. Um, but I really found out really quickly that I wasn't going to be able to do that to my satisfaction from Durham, North Carolina. And instead, um, in my efforts to engage with the general education curriculum at North Carolina Central University, I fell in love with history. I realized that I'd always been in love with history, that I had uh, pursued subjects of inquiry in high school. I'd written a paper, a very short terrible paper about blacks in the war of 1812, for example. Um, and I had been encouraged by the teacher, Mr. Carl Bernstein, who was teaching U.S. history at the time there, black man, who himself had HBCU roots, uh, to go not only to the small library at our high school, but to the libraries in the area, the Alexander Library at Rutgers, for example, or the Middlesex County College uh, Library, which I had done. And so as I realized that the teacher scholars at North Carolina Central University, Dr. Jim Harper was among the first uh, who uh, I drew inspiration from, as I realized that that's what they had done and made a career out of, uh, I decided to give it a shot. I was really bad at it at first, I'll be honest. Um, and my grades reflected that at first because they take no prisoners. Uh, Jim Harper, Dr. Sylvia Jacobs, Dr. Freddie Parker, uh, and eventually Dr. Joshua Nadel. And also at the same time, Dr. Lydia Lindsay, who was from Trenton, New Jersey, uh, created this familial sense whenever you came in the, de in the department. They were there. They were available to engage with you. Uh, they were available not only to engage with your intellectual interests, but also your humanistic interests, who you were as a person. Um, and it just became a place that stuck, even as... You know, you've probably gone through this in some way. You, you go back home at first and you're like, yeah, I'm studying history. And folks at home are like, you doing what? What you going to do with that? Yep. <laughs> what you going to do? How um, you going to bring some money back? Right. Like, what's the future? I didn't know. Um, but by about my junior year, maybe 2004, I was uh, deeply engaged in our undergraduate uh, history society. Uh, by which we fundraised to be able to go to conferences like the Association for uh, the Study of African-American Life and History, ASALA, which I first attended, I believe, in 2004 or 2005 um, as an undergraduate student who presented a terrible paper, but who could also sit in and watch his professors model what they do and then meet others who were doing the same. Uh, and it's stuck, man. I've been I've been doing it ever since, in one fashion or another. And 
like y'all for for those who have been rocking with me from the beginning, y'all know I'm a rattler. So you know, <laughs> out of what a, all the shiggity that's been going on these last uh, four five days, but you know we we you know we we stand beside we stand beside the alma mater. You know what I'm saying? But um, but but yeah, no, I totally um understand what you mean. Like trying to go back home and. Uh, my mom has always been supportive of um, my intellectual pursuits. Uh, but at the end of the day, she is a mother who worries about what her baby going to be able to do uh, after he's done. Big and facts. So, yeah, big facts. And so um, I could definitely understand that. And But I also think that, um, you know, Asala is coming up uh, in, in the next month. And so, you know, I'm, I also think that what you brought up is actually a testament to the importance of black institutions, not only you know, an HBCU like uh, North Carolina Central um, and, and also the importance of, of black uh, teachers, but also the importance of undergrads getting involved in the conference space, not at not while um, places like uh, GOC, the Graduate Association of African-American History, but the University of Memphis is important because it is important to be a, amongst your peers um, in a space. Because sometimes it can get a little... Um, maybe even intimidating at all at sometimes. But I do think that it's important to what you just said of getting involved early as an mm-hmm. undergraduate. Because I know um, I've been a part of conferences and we've had conversations about um, bringing in undergrads because, you know, at least in graduate school, you have the investment of the possibility of a future in the profession. Whereas undergrad, you know, it's obviously a little different. But I'm, I'm appreciative of your um of your community at North Carolina Central uh getting you involved in in Asala because Lord knows like you know Asala is it like obviously you know you know we're involved in AIHS and and uh you know ABWH and other organizations but um you know Asala is you know really as much as there are new things we also need to keep the old around too yeah, it's 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 one of the OGs, as I'm, I know I'm using that phrase a lot, but Asala has been around for uh, almost a century. And it's always been a space, although that seems to be shifting a little bit, but it's always been a space where faculty at HBCUs especially have had considerable influence. And it's always operated from that perspective whereby... Um, it's almost a lab for, for undergraduate students. HBCUs are mainly undergraduate serving institutions. Uh, you know, FAMU and others have PhD programs and such, but uh, it's, it's almost always been a space where, and there are photographs to prove this actually, um, uh, taken by generations of NCCU faculty dating back 40, 45, maybe even 50 years at this point. Um, where they were just as engaged in the traditional things that happen at conferences, starting conversations with each other about edited volumes, for example, or about works in progress, things of that nature. As it's been, let's also make sure that we bring the next generation into this space and let's make sure we create and cultivate a space for uh, the next generation. And to be perfectly honest with you, without that opportunity, I don't imagine how I particularly find myself being an historian uh, because it was the concrete piece 
that made what seems to be at early phases of the career, especially when we're talking about undergraduate study, it, it was a concrete piece that made abstractions in history applicable. Um, and I know we don't traditionally articulate in those ways uh, what it means to actually become an historian, but it really is an intellectual enterprise that is in some ways abstract until you realize where your community is, until you build those networks that ultimately uh, produce concrete outcomes. Uh, and for me, and for a number of my colleagues who are now faculty throughout the nation, uh, that space was first, Asala. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to have to get Asala to sponsor this episode because we've been talking about them a whole lot. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm saying, I'm saying, Dr. Darius Young, I know you're listening, brother. Get a, get them on the line. Get them on the line. There you go. Um, yeah, man. So, so um, shifting a little bit, um, or actually rather deepening it a little bit, um, you know, I'm also interested as well in your trajectory as a scholar of slave resistance. And uh, as your first book shows, a city of refuge, uh, uh, Marinage as well. Um, so, so can you take us back to your formative period where, you know, how did you ultimately arrive at studying the history of enslaved people's resistance in general and Marinage in particular? Sure. That's a, that's another North Carolina Central University origin story, frankly. Um, I mentioned the large lecture Black experience courses where uh, topics were presented to us, uh, basically following uh, the prescriptions in textbooks or the way that textbooks uh, establish for us topics of study to uh, introduce us to the different ways that we can engage with African-American history. Uh, but it was in some of the earliest reading seminars that I took as an upper level undergraduate and then as a master's student at North Carolina Central that I really began to deepen my interest. Uh, and in particularly my master's study with uh, Dr. Freddie Parker, um, the history of slave resistance vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the primary sources of runaway, sl runaways slave flight. Uh, this is happening in the context of senior scholars uh, really passing the torch also to the latest generation of mid-career scholars who uh, are now uh, the marquee names in our profession. Uh, but one of my formative experiences really was, uh, and I forget the venue, but being in a classroom at Hillside High School in Durham and having John Hope Franklin, the John Hope Franklin, whose work I'd also been reading, sitting in the row next to me, just in front of me, leaning back. Remember, this was a tall, long guy. Leaning back, just taking it in. And I remember the person who was facilitating the conversation at the front of the classroom. This had to be about 2005, six, maybe seven, before his death. Um had such a reverence for, for Dr. Franklin. And at first, because I'm a reader that doesn't always go, well, didn't back then go to the acknowledgements or try to identify who the authors were. I wanted to engage with the ideas first. But then she mentioned his name and I was like, that's Dr. F that's John Hope, that's Dr. Franklin. And he's so cool. Okay. There's There was a little bit of a, a moment where 
I saw the human who had done so much to provide for us the evidence, the primary source evidence and secondary contextualization of these histories, whereby I said, okay, at this point, this I, I can see why this is important. I can see why I want to approach it. The Marinage piece uh, comes into existence um, actually in a Latin American history seminar led by Dr. Joshua Nadel, um, who had recently been hired uh, by North Carolina Central University. This had to be about somewhere in the mid-2000s. And my, my memory's foggy now. Um, but I remember reading the way that scholars framed Marinage, and a lot of this actually comes out in the in- introduction of City of Refuge, but the way that scholars of Black resistance in the Caribbean, of slave flight in the Caribbean, and and of marinage in the Caribbean, framed it with such vigor, it seemed to me, and and such uh, creativity, even as they were engaging with primary source uh, discussions. Whereas it seemed that scholars of the subject, similar subjects, slave flight, Black resistance, perhaps marinage, in North America seem to be much more careful and seem to be much more tied to the exact language in the sources. And that was my first question. Uh, how is it that I could engage with different geographic spaces and contexts for what seemed to me to be very similar actions historically? Um, I went to Freddie Parker with this interest and he had published a small book called Running for Freedom, uh, but then a much larger collection of, and by small and large, I mean page count, of, of the runaway advertisements that had ultimately formed the primary source base for Running for Freedom. That volume was called Stealing a Little Freedom, and it was based just on the county archives in North Carolina from the late 18th century to the 1840s. And he said, why don't you have a look at uh, some of the work that we've done. He was pointing me in the direction of his work, but there were others. Um, and I found, as I read through Stealing a Little Freedom, uh, that the enslavers who were advertising for people who ran away pretty much suspected or almost knew where these folks were going. Perhaps they're trying to catch passage on a vessel out of the state, or perhaps they're going to this plantation where they had once lived and where they had family, those kinds of things. But then there was another refrain that it seemed to me that most scholars had ignored, lurking about the neighborhood. Um, And it was this lurking about the neighborhood that seemed to me to suggest marinage because it seemed to be very much like what I'd read in the secondary scholarship of, of Caribbean contexts. And so Dr. Parker then said, you know, there's a guy digging in the swamp in the Great Dismal Swamp, whose work you should take a look at. It was Dan Sayers who was working on his PhD work at the time uh, out of William & Mary. And then he had taken the early tenure track job at um, American, I believe, and started up the uh, Great Dismal Swamp uh, Land Survey Project and Archaeological Field School. And so that's how I began. Uh, It really became a story of moving from the sort of questions that an undergraduate and an early master's student has to, okay, how do I create a project that um, engages with the methodologies and uh, cultures of doing history? 
Um, and so that's how I sort of chose the primary source base that I would engage with at those levels before the PhD program uh, and the geography that um, I would investigate. Man, North Carolina Central, man, this brother here. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really like, it, it reminds me there's a, there's a job that's open at North Carolina Central. I was like, man, they could have just made it a little longer. <laughs> a little longer for a brother, uh, but but nah, um, but no, I, I I find that really interesting because there's a lot there to unpack about, you know, social networks, just just being around honestly at the right time, um, you know, that, for me that's looking above to to the Lord. For others, it might just be um, by happenstance or you know the universe or, or whatever, but. Um, I'm I'm really happy to hear that as well because it also reminds me of just like as someone who's trying to do the work now of understanding um, where marinage fits into the broader um, discussions of how black folks survived, you know, during the colonial um, revolutionary and the peers, the entirety of our experience here um, in, in the West. And so as someone who, you know, at least I don't think, maybe someone who's listening might, might have a little, a little plug, but at this moment, trying to think about how do I get in, not only, you know, I can obviously like literally drive to, you know, different um, uh, wildlife refuges in, in Virginia and uh, North Carolina, but realizing the importance of like you being able to actually um, be involved in, you know, and, and if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you, you were, you participated in the field school um, as well, right? I was attached as um, a PhD student who um, <laughs> was essentially taking a crash course on Dan Sayers' methodologies. Uh, I was enrolled, uh, but it was the undergraduates who were actually enrolled out of American University, and then I enrolled through Ohio State when I was there in 2013. Gotcha. That's actually where I met our good friend, uh, Catherine Benjamin Golden. She was there the same year. Wow. And, and now y'all are co-travelers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it seems. <laughs> it yeah, is. Man. No, no. And so, and so now that we're talking about uh, uh, the Ohio State, I had, you know, I, I'm sure you saw me put the the in, a, in our questions. Uh, because, you know, I'm trying to respect your institution here. Um, so, you know, it's Ohio just, State. <laughs> right, I know, I know. And so um, now that we're talking about uh, uh, OSU, um, so, so, so I'm interested to know because for some, they enter a PhD program already knowing the the topic and all the parts of, around it for their for their dissertation. So I'm interested to know about your experience. Um, so, so when you arrived, you know, did you already know that you wanted to write the dissertation version of City of Refuge? And, and if not, at what point did you know that you wanted to write a dissertation? Uh, about Petit Marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp. I had a general idea that that would be my dissertation topic. Um, <clears throat> I had uh, your 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 audience can't see this, but North Carolina Central University does a really awesome thing when you complete a master thesis. They bind it um, and turn it into something that looks and feels like a book. <clears throat> and so I had written. I forgot how many pages this thing is now. Uh, 80 or so pages 
titled Maroon and Gray, Fight or Flight Among the Slaves of Antebellum Eastern North Carolina. And Maroon and, Maroon and Gray was a, a double entendre of a sort. Um, the school colors of North Carolina Central University are maroon and gray. But also, uh, I was signaling to the audience of Zero who would pick up this master's thesis that Maranaj to me seemed to be a subject about <clears throat> as much about the gray area as it was about what we could define. And so I set out to Columbus to uh, learn <clears throat> much more of the secondary scholarship of the subject uh, and broader fields as well. I needed to do much more reading in early American hist history topics uh, writ large from the late colonial to provincial periods to the revolutionary period uh, to the antebellum period. And I needed to do a lot more reading in the Atlantic world uh, uh, canon, if we can call it that. But I also knew that I did not want to lose focus on this, this version of what, as I was entering Ohio State, I was convinced was, and, and this is my, my early thoughts, I, I had a rather simplistic view of it, I can admit, Black resistance. Maroons resisted slavery. It was a fairly straightforward equation to me at that point in 2011 when I entered uh, the PhD program. Man, by the time I reached candidacy, I knew that the gray area was much more about the complexities of Maranage in different temporal contexts, in different geographic contexts, uh, than it was about the simplicity that one might assume gray area conveys. To be gray can be interpreted as very simple, right? It's, it's just what we don't know. Uh, but there was much more, uh, at least my early uh, secondary reading revealed to me, that might be teased from the primary record. And so in that two-year period of rising to candidacy, 2011 to 2013, I really spent time making the case uh, with the support of my wonderful dissertation advisor, who y'all have landed at Rutgers, uh, hey. <laughs> Dr. Leslie Alexander. <laughs> um, literally um, working through the secondary stuff that was most relevant to the dissertation, but also trying to carve out an understanding of how I would find my own voice using primary sources to do that. Uh, and she was excellent at just listening. Like we would set an appointment and I would come in and I would be anxious because I didn't know what I was doing. We normally don't know what we're doing, especially at early stages of PhD work. And anyone, by the way, who pretends to know what they do, and I use that language very carefully, um, I question. We don't know, it's okay not to know. It's kind of a part of the profession. Um, but she would just listen. And then she would ask one or two questions that seemed to me to be so profound, but to her were probably like, he just can't see it yet. <laughs> he just doesn't have the experience to see it yet. So let me ask, uh, for example, well, who, uh, what does X scholars say, or how might you look at this source differently? Those kinds of questions. And so I realized that that's how a dissertation comes into existence. It's very much placing into the finished product what you know, what you can 
used to demonstrate how you engage the conversation through primary sources. And then what you can signal is the work that needs to be done as well as you move from the dissertation stage to uh, whatever the publications will be that follow. And so to the, the initial point to your question, did I know, uh, I had a sense that maroon and gray would become a dissertation. I had no idea what form that would be. I wasn't fully clear on what uh, historiographies I would center and feature. Uh, I didn't even fully know what the sources were or where I would go to find those sources. I didn't know I would end up in the swamp in 2013. But the experience of the PhD created the space to pursue, to question, to engage. And that was, for me, uh, a wonderful experience. So I want to stay with Dr. Alexander for for a little bit. Um, You talked about her being a great advisor. And... I think it's, and, and as, as I've experienced with uh, Dr. Dunbar, um, in, in my own experience, what makes a great advisor oftentimes has to do with what you need as a person. Um, generally, there are some specifics that you can obviously deviate from. So so I'm actually interested to know, um, and I think it would be a nice homage to her in this in this moment too, so what made Dr. Alexander, as a dissertation advisor, advisor at large, um, and, and I use advisor at large because that, for, your, for you and what you, your needs were, that can extend much further. So there's that. So, so ultimately, what made Dr. Alexander um, a great advisor for you? Sure. I love the question uh, because I love any opportunity to pay homage oh, <laughs> to her. Man, I was a deer in headlights when I arrived in Columbus in 2011. Um, It was the first institutional context in my higher education career where I was not going to be at an HBCU. And to extend that, where I was going to be at a predominantly white institution, because my high school in New Brunswick, New Jersey, as you may know, at the time I was there was 48% Black, 48% Latinx, 2% other. Black and brown people had always been at the center of my educational experience, that is to say. Not only among my peers, but also in the faculties of the places where I trained. And here I was in Columbus at one of the largest PWIs now in the entire United States of America. (laughs) And a little inside baseball here, perhaps. I'd been admitted by Stephanie Shaw, um, who, in my first conversation with her, encouraged me not to just stay uh, attached to her, but to follow my interests that had brought me to Columbus. And she was perfectly fine. She said, I'm perfectly fine if you choose another mentor, uh, another person to advise your studies while you're here. You should follow that interest as soon as you can. Leslie had actually come down to the new student orientation to meet me. And I was I was floored, first of all, because I was like, I didn't know that this was how this was supposed to work. I knew nothing, Adam, like I knew nothing. But she was so kind and so warm and so inviting. Um, and this was 
in part because that had long been her role there at Ohio State, as I came to understand it. She self-described herself as the den mother uh, among the black and brown PhD students who uh, had come through before me. But then I took a look at what she studied and I was like, okay, all right, this, this, that there's, there's, there's the human aspect where I feel like I could talk to this person um, and not lose myself in the process where I could be vulnerable, where I could be anxious as a student and that not be off putting to her. But then here's someone who also writes about early black America. I can learn from her too. And so that's kind of how it started. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. And and that also goes to show uh, for any uh, folks in the Rutgers PhD program that might be listening uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, you know, Dr. Alexander, man, she, she, she here now. She here now. So, uh, Y'all are very yeah. fortunate, let me say. <laughs> Look, when you, like, I, sometimes I'm like, damn, we really got Professor Dunbar, you know, Dr. Uh, a white, um, she, she's heading towards uh, Meredith or Merida uh, status, rather. Um, and then we still have uh, Dr. Fuentes, Dr. Alexander, Dr. Butler, uh, Dr. Burroughs, and uh, Dr. Baragon. And, um, you know, like, we really, and Dr. Tiffany Gill, and, like, we really, Dr., Dr. John Merch. It's like, the list keep, you know what I'm saying? The list keep going. And it's, you know, it's, it's lovely. Um, and, and it's a beautiful tradition. Um, to, to have her there, but it's also one where I think that also requires a particular institutional commitment as well, yes. because it hasn't always been this way that the numbers have been like this, obviously. Um, and so, um, respecting what the work that Dr. Um, uh, Deborah Gray Watt has done, you know, talking about paying homage, you know, it's always, always important, you know. Yes, absolutely. Because yeah, it is work, it is labor, it takes a commitment, and it is not easy to compel institutions to invest in ways that lead to these sorts of abstract outcomes. Mm-hmm. These kinds of outcomes are not tied to revenue. Yep. Don't let me go too far off on this tangent if that's not where <laughs> we're going today. But hey, no, if, no, hey, hey go, go where the spirit leads you, my brother. That's the difference. Um, the, uh, the humanities are not the sciences, no matter how much university administrations would love for the humanities to do more large overhead producing grant writing projects, because that's also not where the students are. That's not the kind of support that the students need. That's not the sort of investment that a scholar needs to put into training the next generation in order to produce the histories that will give shape to society's future. And it's the most difficult thing to articulate at most places in this nation and frankly in this world. I I had a conversation with a colleague who has come over to the States from across the pond in Great Britain, and it's worse there, except for at Oxford and Cambridge. And to some degree, the, 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 the tensions between Parliament and what they attempt to impose upon those great institutions uh, yields similar difficulties, similar tensions, similar problems. And so, I don't know, whenever we have these moments, man, we absolutely have to pay homage. It is 100% necessary. 
um, and always underappreciated, always underarticulated. And actually, that you know, that's a great segue because um, paying homage to Dr. Uh, Thavolia Glimpf, um, the the in you know the soon to be uh, I believe president of uh, AHA. You know, if you're listening to this years later, uh, you might want to check a, a certain uh, sweet article. Um, we'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll just, we'll just leave it at there. You know, that's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother, uh, uh, podcast conversation. Uh, uh, maybe not, maybe that's the one you have over drinks, but you know, depending on, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, depending on the person, of course, but, um, depends on what you uh, want to do with the podcast. I would also say exactly, exactly. Um, if, if there were, if this was a uh, funk flex and there were, uh, uh, you know, drop the bomb. You know what I'm saying? Like, actually, you know, someone actually, if you go to the um, Apple Podcast uh, reviews for and ratings for uh, New Books African American Studies, I, I, I always love this. I've, I gotta find if the, there's a name to this person, but when somebody commented and said some episodes make me feel like there, there needs to be like you know a funk flex uh, a bomb drop. You know what I'm saying? So, I'm saying, I'm saying, like, I, yo, as I'm long as we are as obnoxious as he can be, right? Like, I know, like, start the track, my man, start the track. I know, man. Oh, what? A, <laughs> I love this, man. I love this. Um, and so, you know, I was talking about Dr. Thelonious Glyph. She might listen. It's like, what are these Negroes doing? <laughs> um, but, but Dr. Glyph, there, there, there's a there's a method to the madness going on right now. Um, and so, uh. You know, so so I remember uh, hearing her. I moderated a discussion she had uh, for AIHS a couple years ago. Um, I think about a year, maybe two years ago now, two conferences ago. And I remember her saying, um, and Professor Glenn, if you're hearing this or anyone that knows her directly, please correct me if I'm wrong. But she says that she often needs to go to the locations at which she's talking about to be able to really get a, a better understanding of the of the landscapes as much as you can for what she writes about in the antebellum era. And so I think that's a great segue for this question to you as someone who writes about particular landscapes that you can read about, maybe see some 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 historic photographs of or depictions, but really until you go into the muck and the mire as Professor Golden's uh, dissertation title shows, um you really can't get a true understanding of it. So with that being said, can you actually describe um, your own ex- research experiences in the swamp as its own living archive? Yes, I'll do my best anyway. Um, I wrote my entire master thesis not having visited the swamp. And I went through two years of the first two years of coursework in my PhD program, having yet to visit the swamp. I finally got that opportunity in 2013. Um, And so I'd read quite a bit about what it meant for enslaved people to resist by running away, the perils, especially of doing so, uh, being on the land, Um, the uh, problems of coming up with food and the creative ways that Black people who resisted were able to do so. The communal networks, though hidden from view, 
by which those who remained on the run were able to subsist, all of those kinds of things. I'd read that stuff. Uh, I'd read quite a few runaway advertisements with the descriptions of people who had been captured, recaptured, and bore witness on their bodies to the struggles of having been on the lamb or to the injuries that one might uh, be visited upon while they were on the run. I'd read William H. Robinson's uh, ex-slave narrative and particularly quoted in a block quote and read at an Asala conference the part of the narrative where he talks about um, life in a southeastern North Carolina swamp and how difficult that was, the canes, the reeds, the uh, moment he witnessed a black bear head into a field, grab ears of corn, take them to the fence, throw them over the fence, climb over the fence and keep going. One year I read that out of Sala and because I like to get into character sometimes, I read it with such irony that the audience actually laughed with me. And then I visited the doggone swamp in 2013. And the first thing that stuck out to me, even before I got to the swamp, were the damn yellow flies. They are brutal. They are horrid in May and June. (laughs) And they take no prisoners. And so that raised for me the first question that really changed my perspective on how the eventual dissertation came to be and the book thereby following it. That question was really simple. It's if, if you're going to write about this space and if you're going to try to convey to your readers the experience of this space, you got to remember those yellow flies. You got to remember <laughs> that it doesn't matter how much DEET bug spray you're wearing. It doesn't matter um, how much you try to bat them away. It doesn't matter what fire you try to use to create enough smoke to make it difficult for them to want to bite you. They want to bite you. You're going to get bitten. doesn't matter what's going on. You're going to get bitten. And then entering the swamp, engaging with the physical difficulties of moving through the muck and the mire, um, (laughs) joking with Professor Golden, as we had that experience together and as we were like, what in the world? This is difficult in the present day. This had to be incredibly difficult in the past. It, It started to make much more of the primary record come to life in a different way that allowed for as you say, it to be treated as a living living archive, and more importantly, allows for the historian to contextualize that, to, to breathe that sort of experience into the pages of a book like City of Refuge. And then, of course, I did see black bears in the swamp. That was pretty awesome. They are as cautious as was suggested in William Robinson's ex-slave narrative. That meant something to me because some of the questions that I'd had as a younger student were, well, if this truly was a bear or some other kind of predator, why didn't it attack you? Why was it just sniffing around you? Spend enough time out there in a swamp and you'll find that the way in which they're acculturated to the landscape is a little bit different than you might assume elsewhere. And then you get the the, the spatial geography, the dimensions as well. You, You essentially 
learn what it means to engage with a land space that covers 2,000 square miles. You essentially learn what it means to be in a swamp that in its historic dimensions was as large as the state of Delaware. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of this part because you, you, it's wild. You remind me of the fact that 10 years ago, um, I actually interned at Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge on the eastern shore of Virginia. And we had spoken before we went live about um, in the post-Yorktown moment in 1782, there was a, um, you know, as the next General Assembly session in May of 1782 begins, there's a there's a you know discussion about um, and, and uh, ultimately legislation about um, the manumission of enslaved people um, being opened up um, and uh, pushing away I think uh, at least what 40 or 50 year uh, effectively blockade on the openness of, of manumissions that you actually talk about in your book I remember but it also reminds me of the fact that in that same legislative session there are accounts from and i think almost like was it 60 or to 80 um white residents of Accomack county where shingati is located were complaining about effectively um uh, a banditti of tories and and uh and enslaved folks and other folks just terrorizing um the 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 populace but to your point as someone who lived probably less than a thousand feet from where he worked, but every day everyone having to run to the office, and I, I'm this is not hyperbole, literally having to run to the office because mm-hmm. of all of the horse flies, all of the so just and even thinking, okay, maybe the beach will kind of like change that relationship. No, no, mm-hmm. I'm in the sand and I'm having to like be vigilant. Mm-hmm. So that makes me think of even that experience of maybe not marinage in that way, but definitely people having to seek seek the refuge in the environment. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is the part that is important. And it also begs the question, as, a, as someone who is in a field, going back to that little sweet article, um, who have constant discussions about the nature of the practice of what it means to be a professional historian and how that's embodied. How do you take your experience where you just told us that you effectively through your own experience are corroborating what a historical actor being what Robinson's how, how do you how do you in our space as historians, right? Through your experience, how do we show that on the page? You, well, I guess I can speak for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, this is a, a, a Dr. Marcus Nevius uh, question, so. Yeah, no, um, it's a question that I've answered differently in different places, perhaps, or maybe similarly, but I'm having uh, a bit of a, a different take on it, maybe, now, um, because of the way that you're asking it. It's sort of, you're asking a meta question, that is to say, that, seems almost to push against what traditionally we are expected to do as historians, right? Um, and this, the, there are broader questions here around what's up, objectivity and 
how we pursue objectivity uh, of course. as humans who are supposed to decenter our own observations in the present from um, from what we're attempting to do as we define and narrate the past. That said, <laughs> because of those experiences in the swamp, when I returned after the, uh, the summer of 2013 to the primary record again, different things jumped out to me or, or things that I had just read over besides the William H. Robinson crazy passage uh, jumped out to me in ways that suddenly could to me or seemed to me to be just as important to bring to bear as evidence than uh, some of the things we more traditionally try to do to bring uh, evidence to a story, right? N- let me make that a bit more concrete. Um, I'll, I'll place this in the context of my efforts to engage with the blind readers of City of Refuge, right? So I prepared uh, out of the dissertation, the manuscript City of Refuge, and uh, submitted it to the University of Georgia Press. Shout out to Walter Biggins, who was at the University of Georgia at the time, but who was very much uh, a champion brother. for brother. this manuscript. Absolutely. Um, he sent it out to readers. He fielded their commentary. I've learned since who two of those, I think, three readers were, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but uh, actually, I knew who one was as I was reading the page because I could hear his voice. <laughs> he and I had had these debates in the swamp in 2013. It was Dan Sayers. Um, but <laughs> what what I learned was that when some readers were fascinated by the questions that we are raised when we attempt to add scale to a story, how many people, how do we quantify how many communities, how do we quantify uh, how does that change over time? How do we temporally contextualize the shifting numbers? All of these things that, with a different primary source base, in the wake of Tacky's Revolt, for example, to, to bring Vincent Brown's recent book into consideration, or uh, in, in the wake of the, wind, wind, the Wild Coast Rebellion, to bring Margolene Carr's book into the conversation, um, the evidence didn't bear that out. And to me, at some point, that didn't matter. And one of the readers actually suggested, you have two manuscripts that you've prepared in this one. You could attempt to engage with these questions and hew more closely to uh, the primary record of the swamp and thereby tell a story that is very tightly tacked to uh, the company history essentially, which in some ways this winds up being anyway. Or you could really attempt to engage with the evidence as it stands and interrogate that evidence, which I actually didn't do enough of in City of Refuge. I tried to cut a happy path, but to make a long story really short, when you decenter numbers, when you decenter the sort of primary evidence that might help you to quantify things, help you to contextualize histories in ways that hewed to the stories of the state, let's say. Then you're left with evidence that is, as Risa Fuentes and others have theorized and historicized, uh, glimpses of the past. And it's where, it's then, when you've identified what the glimpses are, that you can 
I think look to your own experiences in the present to inform what you might be reading about the past. So if you're reading uh, contemporary accounts, historical accounts of the, the, the difficulties of traversing the Machinamire, you don't know how difficult that is until you visit it and you do it yourself. So it is conveyed one way if you've never had the experience. And to me, it seems to be conveyed with a different sort of perspective and a different sort of focus if you do have the experience. So so let's get a little more meta here. Um, so you and Professor Golden, for example, had access to uh, the, the field school with Dan Sayers in 2013 um, and, and maybe in subsequent years. after. So for those like myself and others who are interested in the nature of black survival in, you know, Southern Virginia, how would you approach maybe taking this on, you know, you're, you're not only a, a writer, but you're also a teacher and an advisor. How would you advise? And yes, y'all, I know I'm taking this personal privilege. I, I, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but how would you actually then advise somebody who does not have that access and who, who can physically get to the swamp? But, but how would you advise someone who, like me, is entering into this space without access to that archaeological record. Access to the books, of course, but not access to the physical experience. Um, because I had that experience in Shikatig, right, because I worked there. But how does one do that for the swamp now, um, especially without access to uh, the field school that you and Professor Golden uh, benefit from? Sure. I would, I would also plug here again Brent Morris's book because he was the actual scholar, the historian, who was um, brought on board by Dan Sayers before even 2013 uh, to bring historical context and historical records uh, to to the work of the Great Dismal Swamp Land Survey. Uh, but it, what I would advise um, is to look for similar or proximate ways of, of accessing the swamp, right? And for what it's worth, the Great Dismal Swamp now has uh, at least two access points that you can use uh, to three, actually, three significant ones, let's say, that you can use to approximate the experience that Dan Sayers' field schools have had, uh, that uh, I have had, that Professor Golden and Professor Morris have had. Um, there's the state park access on the eastern side of the swamp in North Carolina, off of US Highway 17, um, that includes actual physical uh, land bridges that have been built into a small sector of the swamp. It doesn't get you to the hummocks in the interior of the swamp, but it will introduce you to the yellow flies. And just the same, you will learn just how voracious they are. Their appetites are for, for human specimens. There's on the western side of the swamp an access point that the de uh, uh, Department of Environmental Protection, I'm, I'm getting that name mixed up, but on the Virginia side of the line, um, that's much less developed than the North Carolina State Park, uh, whereby you might be able to um, 
make contact with some of the people whose job it is to steward the protection of the swamp and perhaps gain access uh, to deeper parts of the swamp on your own uh, with their blessing. And then there's, I think, the most interesting, aside from being able to go in where we went in, um, point of access, which is the access road near Washington Ditch that will take you down to Lake Drummond. And you need a car for it unless you're a hiker and you're interested in hiking about five miles uh, from the entry point into uh, the point where you actually pull up on Lake Drummond. That's on the Virginia side of the line as well. And you drive in on a well-maintained former canal towpath to a point where um, you find yourself on the south or southwestern shore of Lake Drummond. And the mileage that you uh, traverse through that access point actually gives you a really good understanding of, or at least a really good survey, I should say, of the broader swamps ecology. At the point of access, it's the tall, older growth trees that have been relatively well preserved by comparison to some other parts of the swamp. And then you get to a point where you're at the center of the swamp where the ecology has been significantly uh, changed by natural events or by uh, historical logging. And then you pull up on the lake. I did this last summer, maybe, when I was there, because it's been a while since I visited. The yellow flies are still there, too. They were literally, I have the pictures. They were literally sitting on my rearview mirror waiting for me to open the door. At least one of them. But you can also get the experience that Moses Grandy describes in his ex-slave narrative of at least living for a moment on the shore of Lake Drummond. You can look at the waters. They're still uh, colored a very deep, rich, auburn sort of color. Um, And you can stand there and imagine what it must have been like to be in this space when it was... uh, the site of extractive slavery or extractive lumbering enterprises that uh, relied on uh, the extraction of slave labor. But then you have to always remember your responsibility, and I try to do this as much as I possibly can, to privilege the documents in such a way, and we can uh, think more broadly today about what it means to collect a primary source base. It doesn't just have to be primary source documents. It can be oral histories. It can be the archaeological material record. But you have to privilege this archive in such a way that although you've had these experiences, you're using the, this evidence, these, these, this archive, to tell the story. And what that means is if you have limits in the ways that you can tell that story because you have limits in what you can actually do with this archive, then you respect that as well. I I tried to do that as much as I possibly could in City of Refuge, and in some ways, um, City of Refuge doesn't get as close to the individual or collective communal experiences of Maroons as I would have liked. But I was doing that in part because, at least at at that point in my career, I was privileging the record that I had gathered. And although I was reading this record with my present day understandings and observations of the swamp in order to help me understand what I read in the record, it was still the record that I used to tell the story. So I didn't insert 
myself circa 20 or circa uh, 2019, 2018 into the book as much as I looked at the records that I had and when I saw something that made me think of what I'd experienced myself, there's a way that I can use my experience to understand this record to in turn tell the story that I'm contextualizing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I really appreciate you for that because it, it was really helpful to, to really get behind the veil of sorts to, to, to understand your process and, and how you, I would also imagine, advise folks as you just did, but also how that comes in in the classroom as well. I'm sure students and, and folks, um, we're, we're going to talk about a little later um, some some more um, interactive experiences that you've had with um, uh, different maroon uh, families, um, you know, maybe not necessarily uh, in the dismal, but more broadly, um, the Atlantic world. Um, but but it also reminds me, time and place are also important to, to, to recognize because we, we're talking about, uh, we're paying homage to um, Professor White and Professor Glimpf and Professor Alexander, um, all of them came up in a particular time frame. And I think that's important. So we are in a particularly um, important scholarly, almost, I don't know, renaissance or what might be the right word, but there's been an uptick, shall we say, in the studies of Marinage, um, in the Great Desert Swamp, and, and, and more broadly, I think, as well. You, you cited... Um, Taku's Revolt, and you know there are a, a number of different folks doing work on, on Marinage. Um, you know, uh, shout out to to my boy Bradley Craig is Dr. Bradley Craig as well, um, working with the uh, Trelawney Maroons as well. Um, but speaking towards the dismal, there's been a lot of work. Yourself, Professor Golden, Professor Morris. Um, you know, I'm looking at Slavers Exiles um, uh, as well from from uh, about a decade ago. Um, you know, we also have the development of Black Ecologies um, as its own conceptual framework with uh, Justin, Justin Hosby and, and JT Roan, who's been a guest on the program before. And so with that being said, as someone who's, you know, spanned the test of time over these last, you know, you know the amount, I ain't going to say it, but, you know, like 15 years or so, um, <laughs> you know, what factors do you identify as the reasons behind you know, this uptick or a renaissance um, as well. And, and really the, the study of the environment as well in this connection to um, enslavement and slave resistance. Yeah, um, man. You know, when you when you sent me the, the run of show here and I saw that question, I said, ooh, this one's going to be interesting. Uh, and so I made myself a note that the first thing that I would say is I'd be really interested to hear how uh, professors Hosby and, and, and Rome would respond to this question too. But what do I see as part of the generative fabric of what's undergirding this explosion? And and, and I think it's twofold. I think the first is that we're in a particular social moment, uh, which is increasingly uh, defined 
by diverse perspectives at all levels of society, right? Um, we're in a context that is to say that is not solely shaped by old or middle-aged or rising white men whose perspectives shape everything from the way that students aspire to learn to the way that students are funded uh, to get the opportunity to learn uh, to the way that federal funding institutions make selections about whose work gets celebrated and funded and supported and the like. There's much more, there, there are much, there's much work to be done. Let me say that. But there are, are significant efforts afoot to broaden, to deepen the mere compositions of committees that make these decisions that in turn create opportunities for folks, right? So we must acknowledge that. Uh, but I think the other end of it is that uh, in the past 15 years, especially as, as long as, 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 as I've been a student and now a faculty member, there's really been much more of an emphasis at the level of university administrations to privilege cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary research uh, approaches and perspectives. And let me say again, there's much more work to be done. But what that has presented, and frankly, what that's, that's resulted in, is folks who used to be very much hewn to discipline-specific standards have either been interested in or compelled to think more creatively about the ways in which they approach a traditional subject like history. So let me put some meat on the bones here. 50 years ago, 30 years ago, somewhere in the window between the late 60s when scholars in the, the vanguard of the creation of African-American history were saying, or African-American studies or Caribbean studies, all of the, the area studies as they used to be known, um, when folks who were in the vanguard of creating these, these new and vibrant approaches to studying topics like history were essentially minimized and were essentially cowed into a position where they were limited in the access to resources and access to audience. In that context, even the most careful of scholars had to, in some ways, foreground discipline-specific approaches to primary research, traditional ways of, or rules for, gathering an empirical primary source base, if we're speaking about history, before one had enough evidence to tell a story. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. For, 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 for those historians who continue to train and want to do the work of building empirical primary source bases before they feel they have enough evidence to tell a story, the lane is still there. Those stories are still excellent in many ways, some of them anyway. Um, and I understand the logic that undergirds that approach to history. It does in some ways make framing, writing, demonstrating the evidence for a story somewhat easier. And it does so because we have this longer history of people accepting that as history, right? 
we can see the evidence of it in our own profession, in our own discipline, African-American history. Many more books on, on a subject like Frederick Douglass because of his prolific career as a writer. The quote-unquote sources are there. But we can't tell the richest histories, the most comprehensive histories, and ignore the broader segments of historical populations that lived and died and struggled and survived without finding creative and new ways to engage what dearth of primary sources we have as evidence of their lives too. And it's it's in that context that this new uh, flowering of attention on marinage, attention on black ecologies, it's in that context that uh, this new approach to essentially framing history has come into existence. We, that is to say, as we've had in this conversation, have to take the opportunity to see the environment as an archive, as primary source evidence in a way, so long as we properly contextualize that a space like the Great Dismal Swamp, for example, looked considerably different in different temporal contexts. Just the same as we can look at William Byrd's famous words on his survey of the state line betwixt Virginia and North Carolina. What makes one any more worthy of privilege than the other, other than the decisions that the scholar makes in one individual project and that the community of scholars make to either accept or reject that project? That's the question, I think, that has become decentered and deprivileged and has opened the door for such a flowering of new new research yeah and and you know to to the how you started it i'm uh hopeful to get uh both uh uh hosby and roan on to to be able to to answer that particular question too so i'm glad i wrote it down so i'll you know ask it to them uh almost verbatim <laughs> um but but i appreciate that um the the historiographical nature of the question uh that you just answered but also it, it it made me actually think about um you know th- there's been a lot of discussions about uh the 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 actual discipline of african american studies africana studies and, um especially in the last uh couple uh, about year with the uh, new ap african american studies uh course that that's about to go go live and the question of the use of history as opposed to studies because the discipline of African-American history and the discipline of African-American studies are not the same. Mm-hmm. Although you know, the conflation happens to people like uh, Josh Myers, uh, uh, <laughs> to Chagrin, no Fred Howard, and, uh, Greg Carr, and many other people. Um, yes. So, so, so definitely understand that. But your, 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 your answer actually pushed me there to think about a lot of the work is being done in the discipline of African-American history. But then it also made me think about taking African-American history seriously as a discipline to really think, what is the charge? What is the mission of African-American history that is different from American history? Because, you know, you brought up John Hope Franklin before of just, you know, African-American history is American history. And, you know, that dialectical, that, that factually and dialectically is, is true. But as people who are, are who, who are African-Americanists as uh, in our discipline, but to try to actually think, and, and this is not on the run of show, but it just made me think, asking you, 
now I'll also chime in as well. My preliminary thoughts, but to, to you, what does make African American history as a discipline and as a charge different? Because I don't know if you remember seeing this on Twitter, people were like their academic genealogy. And yeah, yeah, got it, got a little, it's got not, a little weird. It, it, yeah, because it's not just an academic genealogy, and it's it, it's not what that might imply, which is black space. And then American history is what really matters. It's not at all that. As I understand it, and as I attempted to to articulate in the introduction of of City of Refuge, uh, which was very much a distilled version of my readings in African-American history at Ohio State, uh, literally my my qualifying exams, um, as they were proctored by folks there. Um, African-American history has always been a protest discipline. And that's not to say that it's been the sort of protest discipline that raises torches on the front lines of the public battle for uh, the most pressing social issues, although it has also occupied that space. But it's really been about the space into which scholars of all backgrounds, and I say that intentionally, have either been hewn, shoved, or come into of their own volition when they want to turn the focus and center people of African descent in histories that might otherwise be uh, framed as American history and shaped very differently. It's really about the characters, the agents, the historical actors that we bring to the center of the story of America's history, right? And uh, our good friend Woody Holton comes to mind almost immediately as we're having this conversation because that's what he's attempting to do with with uh, the latest book, Liberty's... Uh, Liberty Sweet. Liberty is sweet. Thank you. I knew I was going to mess that up. But it's what Gary Nash did before that. It, it's it's what John Hope Franklin spent a career doing, even when in the 40s, when he was starting out and doing his research in the South, they put him in mop closets as his reading room. He was still parsing the same primary records with a different focus to tell the story of America's history. Now, it does raise a different sort of question that I think our generation of scholars will eventually need to grapple with, right? Uh, Because there's a dialectic there that I think needs to shift. And these are my initial thoughts about it, right? Like, why not then just call it American history and decide to use Black actors at the center of your story, just the same as people who do American history would turn to George Washington and call that American history. Isn't that truly what it means to do American history? is to decenter, deprivilege that sort of long-standing binary and instead choose your actors and write your history. I think we'll get there. But I think the legacy of African American history might must also must also be remembered and that, that we must also really pay homage to it because of the long struggle. And that struggle reaches way beyond the 20th century, the long black freedom struggle, which uh, Professor Murch and others uh, engage uh, in their in their studies. This is me thinking about conversations I've had with Hassan Kwame Jeffries at Ohio State, who's another of my mentors. Uh, when William Cooper Nell and people like him in Boston 
forced the local uh, uh, community in Boston to center Crispus Attucks and launched the 30-year-long effort to get his statue erected on Boston Common. That was, in some ways, African-American history's seacorn, because that was the mission, was to, as the nation or as different locations in the nation, were defining American history and defining its central characters. Here we have Nell and his, his, his community doing the same. It's just that in the 20th century, when the Black freedom struggle, uh, and this is my take on it, my specific take on it, really became huge to uh, trying to to rectify the legacies of slavery, that I think we have this cultural divide that still sort of uh, defines the field as we think of it. And that's not even to comment on the insights that African-American studies and the other uh studies, uh, disciplines bring to <laughs> really what we need to do to, to further complicate, to get to a point where we have better American histories, so to speak. But it's a really complicated and thorny issue that I'll be, I'll be working on the rest of my career. That's for sure. And, and to, to your point, because I, because I said that I would also, Time in, like I think it's it's tough because, and, and you heard me speak about this um, at uh, the Society of Historians of the Early American Republic conference down in New Orleans uh, last month, where I brought up the fact of like what happens when African American history as a discipline becomes so institutionalized. And I'm not saying that as a necessary like like in and of itself a problem, but when it becomes so institutionalized that sometimes you could see maybe people choosing books or title, you know, that they choose their topic based upon, once again, talking about moments, seeing where the leaves are turning, right? Where, mm-hmm. where the wind is taking you and that not necessarily be because you actually care about the recovery work. Mm-hmm. But you see dollars and cents, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so I, that that's the thing about for me, where as people who are interested in traditions, right, the tradition of North Carolina Central producing the most um, black PhDs in history out of all HBCUs, mm-hmm. and so so being very much interested in in cultivating and extending that legacy. But then also thinking about historiographically, start to see things, people that are winning surprises. And it's like, yo, dog, like, this is your only book on us. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so, so, so that, that's in a way where the question is going. And, and not to talk about this in, in the sense that, you know, wonderful black people are the only people, you know, that can write about us because lord knows on the flip side you know uh, just because you are right just because you are black and just because you are um an african-americanist doesn't actually mean that you are part of the quote-unquote protest tradition that you brought up before um because i think that you know i know that um you know african-american studies um a lot of folks um are that I don't know if a crisis moment, um, but a, a identity moment as well. Yeah. 
Um, and I say that because sometimes people, and you see this sometimes when you go to bookstores. What is considered African-American studies? What is considered African-American history? Um, yeah. Because, to, to, to put my hands out, I am someone who has taken African-American studies classes who have helped to, you know, with this 100th episode, I've um, conducted a lot of interviews with books, with uh, book authors and, and scholars and, and other folks who are in black studies more, you know, as their like main discipline. And so right. thinking about that as well and, and, and showing my hands with that is important. Um, but then also we see jobs, Africana studies and. Yeah. And then you hear people who are uh, Africana studies PhDs, African-American studies PhDs, are they able to get particular jobs? Because the the line is not a line, it's li- li- lines plural. Yeah, you're, you're so, speaking yeah. to institutional problems that are even a, a more th- a thorny conundrum, I guess is the best word to use then. Than we have time for on 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 air today. But what I will right. say is this: um, having been here at the University of Rhode Island, privy to conversations about how those sorts of jobs come to be, literally having been one of the people in the room who helped to prepare one of those uh, calls a couple of years ago when we put out the call for the new chair of Africana Studies here. Uh, inside baseball, a little bit, but not too much. Not anything that I'll legally get in trouble for. <laughs> um, right, yeah. The the directive comes top down. The provost, generally, of most universities uh, allots a number of lines that the different colleges can then distribute to the different departments within those colleges. And in most cases, the the lines are never enough to serve the needs. But the problem is that the revenue that the provost's office is generally trying to balance doesn't necessarily reflect the need either. And so faculties generally have to come up with really creative ways to try to create these opportunities. And then it becomes the mission of a particular committee to signal what they're looking for in a job posting and then as they field applications to remain true to to that mission. And therein lies the rub. That's where it gets really complicated because it's it's a chicken and an egg problem that originates with not enough lines. There should be way more lines. There should be far more faculties across the nation that teach lesser loads. Frankly, let me be honest and and say that. Um, But that's not always the case. And so, It really becomes, for faculty, a matter of trying to figure out who you can work with and what department to make the best of what you've been given from above, from from the university administration. And then when you get those resources, how do you remain true to the discussions that you have once you start fielding these applications? It gets really thorny because there are... um, HR Title IX considerations. It gets really thorny because there are uh, sometimes social considerations at your particular institution or where your institution is located or how prominent your institution is within your state. But all that to say that you you have a very sharp observation in in what you've suggested here. Um, 
And it's almost never a question of, at least in my view, it's almost never a question of what the discipline itself is. It's just a matter of, no, that's simplifying it. It, it. it tends to center on being a matter of what the committees are empowered to do and what they in turn choose to do with that delegation of power. And, and that's another question altogether because it then sometimes becomes a question of representation on those committees. Do you have the right people for this sort of search? That's not always the case either. Oof. Yeah, th- th- this is a... This is an important conversation that we should definitely uh, uh, continue at some point too. Um, I will but, say this: yeah. you will you will learn when you land a faculty job the specific context that you land in, the specific institution, the the mm-hmm. the politics of that institution. You'll learn very quickly just how thorny a problem it is. It's more than what you read on a page, and it's more than who gets what job. I'll say that much. Much more. And look, I, I pray that I'll be able to put in an app for one of those jobs uh, coming up soon. So uh, amen to that. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, so so earlier you had spoken about how when you were um, a younger scholar, acknowledgments of book acknowledgments were not exactly the thing that you um, spent a lot of time reading, you know, straight to the arguments, straight to the, the intellectual work. Um, but why I'm glad that in, in, in my early career stage, I've, uh, I've learned very quickly about the importance of the book acknowledgments, because then you can better connect, as I learned, to those intellectual uh, uh, developments that, that, um, that foreground the, the work. So with that being said, um, I was reading your, um, your, your book acknowledgments, and I noticed you mentioned a particularly formative uh, conference experience um, on your road to completing City of Refuge. Um, and it was the ninth, let me make sure I got this right, the ninth Charlestown International Maroon Conference. Um, mm-hmm. so, so tell us, what was so significant about this particular, this particular experience? Sure. Um, I applied to uh, present a paper at the conference, uh, and the uh, paper was accepted. <clears throat> and so with the support of, of various units here at the University of Rhode Island, I traveled to Jamaica. Um, The conference itself is set at Charlestown, one of the historic Maroon communities, which traces to the 18th century in the eastern region of of the island, the windward region of the island. Um, The community at Charlestown today, or at least this was in 2017, has develop networks with two scholars who are stateside here, Paul Youngkist at uh, the University of Colorado and Fran Botkin at Towson University in Maryland. Shout out to them both. They're awesome people. Um, But they they really, together with the leaders, the colonels, uh, as they're known in Charlestown, and the other uh, cultural leaders, and also more recently with the Jamaica Board of Tourism, the National Board of Tourism, have created a space where in June of every year, I believe it's June, um, they invite from institutions around the globe scholars to come in to present their work on maroon histories or maroon perspectives or maroon studies or 
uh, however you're approaching the topic, uh, it's an it's an interdisciplinary conference, but also have the opportunity to engage with the descendants of the community at Charlestown and the descendants from other of others of Jamaica's maroon communities uh, as they present their work at this conference, but also as um, the local Rastafari, and this was one of the real formative experiences, put on um, a tree burning celebration or ceremony. Uh, I forget the, the formal name of it or it's not coming to me currently, but it was in this space where I found myself among actual maroon descendants in a way where I had already had this thought, but where it occurred to me very quickly that my work doesn't really matter as much as doing everything that I can to amplify knowledge of this town, of its history, or knowledge of the subject more broadly is the actual mission, is the actual point, right? And Charlestown and the other towns on Jamaica and other places in the global south are distinctive by comparison to a place like the Great Dismal Swamp in that they were able to claim space, they were able to get their claims to that space uh, after warfare, uh, uh, acknowledged by treaty agreement with Parliament uh, in the British Empire. There were no such uh, acknowledged struggles in the Great Dismal Swamp. And so the, the community today there is, a, is different and engages with the space differently than they do um, in Jamaica. But anyway, to be in this space and to have the opportunity to ask uh, one of the Lumsden brothers, specifically a question like you just asked me, I'm a scholar in the global north, let's say. What's my responsibility as I, in turn, finish the work that I'm finishing on, finishing, and then present it uh, to colleagues and to other audiences? And to hear from a Maroon descendant in Maroon leadership at Charlestown say, your responsibility, first and foremost, is to always articulate the complexity of Maroon history, more so than anything else. It... it <clears throat> That reshaped at a final stage what I was doing with City of Refuge, and then it emerged, as we'll talk about briefly, I suppose, in the historiographical essay that I wrote and published in History Compass, because I always hear his voice and that advice. And it, it, it having the opportunity to go to Jamaica to engage as a scholar, but also to engage as a person, uh, created a situation where at least I learned a bit of advice that I'll carry with me forever. So long as I continue to do this work. And that's fascinating because as people who write about histories that are 150 plus years old or more, often we do not always have the chance to interact with people with direct ties to the, the, the writing, right? You know, my partner, she writes about the civil rights movement. Um, you know, shout out to Allison Mitchell, you know what I'm saying? Love that. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, so thinking about, um, you know, her work, like she writes about politics in the 20th century and voting rights in Florida. We are nineties babies. We yeah. know the 99 Florida election, like as a pivotal point, but we can, I could talk, we could talk to our parents and, and maybe sometimes even our siblings about that. Um, I'll never get, you know, like my mom get got mad at me because uh, I was like, 
you know, I asked my mother, mommy, what was, what, uh, uh, you know, the situation that I ain't gonna say it. Effectively, I was like, mom, what's oral sex? And like, yeah. literally as a, as a child and her yeah. effectively hating Bill Clinton from the end of that. So you can touch those history. Yeah. But for you to be able to, um, to speak to direct maroon descendants, like you said, colonel, if 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 I'm not mistaken, how? Yeah. So so you said that. So you told us that that changed you. Tell us how. A little bit more, if 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 you sure if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it was a visceral experience, right? Because you're right. One of one of the old jokes about doing. Um, 18th, 19th century histories or histories of periods before that is that all of the actors are dead. This is a joke that a scholar that was a mentor to me once said that his generation of scholars actually uh, foregrounded in their conversations over drinks. And what it essentially meant was that they would never have to engage with a live audience about the interpretations that they bring to bear in the primary sources. And that was for them uh, a, a consoling feeling, if I can summarize a memory in that way, a memory of my conversation with a, a mentor who's been gone now. He's been with the ancestors almost 10 years. And that to some degree has had been before 2017, how I had approached these histories that have shaped my own work. But then I got to Charlestown and I got to be a bit of an anthropologist without the training, of course. So I'm not saying that I'm an anthropologist, but I got to speak to my subjects, quote unquote. Um, I didn't approach it that way in my mind at the moment. I was really just having a conversation with um, one of the community leaders in a moment where things were happening that I can't even say on air, I might share with you later, but I could look him in his eye and I could convey my sincerity in asking the question about what my responsibilities are. And he could convey his sincerity in providing the advice that has continued to shape the way that I look at these records. Perhaps that's <clears throat> an experience that um, scholars of 20th century and especially late 20th century subjects uh, know as, as part of their praxis and practice because they have to, because their subjects are alive. And this is a question that I've raised um, in a conference space as recently as, uh, I guess it was the Organization of American Historians, uh, wherever they last met. I've been so many places this summer. My brain is all over the place. But <laughs> I raise that question always when I when I jump into the room in 20th century conversations for the reason that we're, we're discussing, for the premise that we're bringing up. You have a very different set of responsibilities, it seems, when your subjects are the history and they're still alive. I say it seems, however, because I truly do believe that even though our subjects are long gone to be with the ancestors, we still carry the same kinds of responsibilities. And that's why I asked that question. And that's why his answer struck me the way that it did. And that's important because at the end of the day, 
whether or not we see see folks or not, um, recognizing that, you know, and, and I said this um, last year, but we don't speak for anybody. Like, I, I think the, the, the narrative space where people always try to convey, you know, I am, you know, speaking for people who can't speak. Um, they're speaking. It's whether or not you are interpreting them correctly um right and 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 as someone who's worked in public history a lot i think it's interesting as well because the medium of expression on a on a walking tour or in an exhibit um is different than in a book um because you're the 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 public is directly in front of you and you have an opportunity to convey information to recover information um and, and histories but to outright say that you speak for whether or not you can see the people or not, that, that, that's a, that's a bridge too far. Um, yeah. And, and so, so going back to your experiences in, in Charlestown, I'm also interested to know um, because you have areas of, um, you know, North Carolina, Gates County uh, was a Pasquotank and, and the different areas of, um, of Suffolk and Norfolk and and so I'm interested to know, have you ever, I guess knowingly, um, interacted with someone who is a descendant of uh, Dismal Maroons or even people who worked in the various you know Dismal Swamp uh, Canal companies or you know that were enslaved in those particular industrial areas too. I have not yet directly, knowingly, uh, engaged in those sorts of conversations with descendants of Maroons, especially, but also of the enslaved laborers who uh, whose histories uh, unfolded at the different slave labor camps in the swamp. But um, Moses Grandy's descendants are very, very active um, in... Uh, Southside Virginia, and and frankly, they have, along with the Nansaman people's descendants, um, or the present day Nansaman people, I should say, created a great dismal swamp. Uh, uh, they've created an organization called the Great, uh, called the Great Dismal Swamp Stakeholders Collective, um, whereby they're they're uh, coordinating the efforts today to commemorate the human history of the swamp. They meet. Uh, biennially, perhaps, I think every six months. Um, And they've also engaged with Dr. Golden and others who have done considerable work on the swamp's histories and such, such that they've gotten the attention of Southside Virginia's representative in the United States Congress uh, to put forward a petition uh, to get federal recognition for the Great Dismal Swamp as as a space of human history, in addition to its status as a national wildlife refuge. Uh, they've also been really influential in getting the city of Chesapeake to uh, put out a call for um, architectural concepts, for, for an architectural firm to create a plan for an historical site at Dismal Town, Dismal Plantation, uh, which the city of Chesapeake did do and did select an architectural firm to start that work. Um, I've also, I should say here, sort of 
not pursued the work of of engaging directly with descendant communities in part because of the way that I define myself as an historian. Uh, I live in the archives, that is to say, but also because people like Professor Golden are way better at it than I am. That is what she trained to do. Uh, That is the uh, foundation of her dissertation work. Um, And so I learned a lot just listening to her uh, talk about the, the conversations that she had with folks and um, the work they were doing. I always keep an eye on it, and I'm always there to lend whatever my authorities are as historian. As you may see, if you look uh, in the Virginia Pilot or the Washington Post, I've been uh, interviewed as part of the broader effort to bring attention to the swamp's history. And that's a role that I'm most comfortable with. And there's a larger conversation here to be had about what we decide to be as historians, because we can wear many different hats, uh, especially in this 21st century context of the profession. But my hat is in the archives. I really enjoy the archives and I really enjoy historiographical uh, study and conversations, teaching, researching and the like. And, and, I, and I'm glad as well to have an opportunity to, to speak about um, paths and traditions. Because I think that, that those are very important about knowing what, knowing, knowing, your, uh, knowing your place is not the right term, but knowing your lane that you, that no one is sticking you in, but that you're pursuing. Um, right. Because ultimately you're, the questions, and actually this is something to think about as well, um, in terms of your own direction, like pivoting off of the run of show, what questions in your broader understanding of yourself as, as an intellectual and a scholar and a historian, what questions keep you going? Like, like I'm, I'm pivoting a bit, but, but I think it's important that we speak about that now because of your provocation here. Um, but, but, but yeah, what questions do you do, do you surmise or things that agitate you that keep you moving in your direction as a, you know, you're, 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 you're a young brother, you, you know, you're a young scholar. The longer I sit in this chair today, the, the harder it is to feel young. I'll tell you that I get tight quick these days. Um, <laughs> no, to, to your point. So the, those questions I think are, are, are shifting. A bit, and that when you talk to scholars who are have, have more experience than I do, they say is normal. So when I was younger, I was very much trying to understand two things about the world in which I lived, my present day world, fifteen years ago. Um, I wanted to know why such a fuss among our elders and older people about race. And it sounds really naive, but I was also a kid who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, where if you think about the people who are in, who were in my peer group, and even more so for, I think, your generation now, who are in your peer group, race is a thing. Yeah, we understand it. It happened then, but, you know, am I really looking at the person standing next to me who's my age the same way that I felt my grandparents might have? perceived white people? Not necessarily. And so those were the questions that sort of framed what I wanted to learn about history. How did we get to this point? That is to say, were a lot of the meta questions that drove my my inspirations. Now, as 
a new mid-career scholar, I suppose, someone with tenure, I am increasingly much more interested in the way we commemorate things, right? And this is with an eye toward 2024 through 2026 or however we're going to frame the 250-year anniversary of the American Revolution. But to that point, my questions now are very much more about how we as professional historians frame the histories that we ultimately produce and that will ultimately give shape to, in some ways, what broader public celebrations are. And I think that shift reflects two things, right? The first is that it reflects, I'm aging. It reflects the fact that although you can see my beard right now and my hair, it's all black, there are grays in there. Like I'm getting older than I was and I think <laughs> different things interest me more so than before. But also it reflects a better understanding of my responsibilities as an historian from my position today than what I understood my responsibilities to be as a graduate student and as an early career scholar. Uh, And I think that's the part that's even far more important to grapple with than anything is professional historians, particularly those of us who have institutional affiliations of any sort, are granted in some ways a different positionality in various aspects of public space in ways that I could not have anticipated before I bore the title assistant professor, and especially before I bore, now bear, the title of associate professor. And that, for me, shifted the way that I began to think about the questions that drive me. Now it's much more about my responsibility to broader publics and to my profession than it is about what I might have been interested in as an individual. What do you see as your responsibility? <laughs> um, we we get down foremost, there, brother. We we getting there. We getting there. First, first and foremost, it's the essential mission of African American history. It is to always, in the histories I tell, bring to the center black actors and actors of the African diaspora. That doesn't mean that I'm going to just center them in my stories. It doesn't mean that every story I tell will even feature them in an obvious way. City of Refuge, you might some people have read, I should say, doesn't necessarily center the Maroons. The sources don't necessarily allow me to do so in ways that I would have liked. But that is the story, and therein for me, and perhaps for other reviewers, uh, has been the way that I've been able to perform that work. That, to me, is the vital responsibility. That's important, brother. That's important. And and and, th- and thank you as well for speaking to this, because I think it is very important to try to recognize what everyone's mission is. Because I think that as well, when you when you hear what your mission is as a, a histo- as a as a black person who is an, a historian of the African American experience, I think it's important to to be able to, to to diagram to folks because I think reading your book with that knowledge is helpful. Because sometimes it's when you have those conversations that you then go back to page 45 and be able to be like, okay, I can understand the interpretation that you or who they are are bringing to bear because of what they perceive their mission as. So to give you, like, to your point about Professor Golden, um, and, and I think it's just interesting uh, reading both of your works while, you know, in the stage and thinking like, oh, yeah, they might be reading 
the same archives or but you know it, it's important to understand the the kind of work um both very both important work for what they're doing but their missions might be different but that doesn't mean yeah. that there's a problem with that it just means that what they're doing is just different um it's it's a conversation she and i have had several times <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I'm sure y'all will have with me exactly. as well, because, you know, and I think, to, to be honest, I think part of the reason why I've really enjoyed getting to know you and Professor Golden and, and other folks, because y'all are doing the kind of work that I want to do with my work, because doing the dissertation work in the midst of COVID, and we're so obviously in the midst of it, but like the early chapters of of, of uh, the, the pandemic, have really made me think about the question of survival and how do, how do folks stay alive um, mm-hmm. in, in their particular context has really been something I thought about. And um, I, I honestly thought I would be on the fringes of Omarinage, but, but your work has been honestly, um, you know, Professor Dunbar and everyone else's follow the sources. Well, soundly in this case, following the sources, it's following the questions and following the work that you that you've been seeing, so I really want to say thank you to you. We ain't at the end, uh, but I want to say thank you to you for 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 this because it's been very, um, it's it's definitely been uh, very helpful. Um, and so as uh, you know, we're pivoting towards you know the towards the end of our conversation here. Um, you know, we still got a little extra time to be able to talk historiography. Um, so. You know, you, you spoke about your uh, article, which I got right here. Listeners can't see, it. but uh, the the re- the review um, essay that you wrote, um, um, leave yep for History Compass, uh, new histories of marinage in the Anglo-Atlantic world and early North America. So, um, you know, you you've written you know review essays and and knowing what you just said helps me to understand why you wrote the works that you are doing because just because you're a scholar of doesn't mean you will write such and such work. So, so that's really important. So why did you decide to write each essay and take us behind the veil into how and why you constructed each essay uh, the way that you did? Because essay writing is very different. Sure. Yes, it is. And, and to that point, the second essay uh, was published in the William and Mary quarterly. It's a, Global Warfare, Conspiracy Scares, and Slave Revolts in a World of Fear. Uh, But I'll I'll answer the question together. Um, I was invited to actually write both of them, Going Behind the Veil. Um, Shout out to Professor Daniel uh, Livesey for the History Compass invitation, and shout out to uh, Professor Nick Popper uh, for uh, the William and Mary Quarterly uh, invitation. They had very separate motivations or aims for these essays when when the invitations came. Uh, The New Histories invitation was really about what you observed is happening uh, with Maroon Studies. It was really about uh, Dan's observation that there's been a flowering of new work in Maroon Studies. And for historians, he thought, and I agreed, uh, it would be really beneficial for someone to attempt an historiographical essay of the last 15 years. And so that that raises the first point uh, that's one of the parts of your question. Uh, what are the challenges and what are, what are the limitations of writing an historiographical essay? Well, one of the main challenges is that you have 
somewhere between 6,000 and 8,000 words maybe that the person who invites you to write such an essay will budget for that. Um, there's a funny story that I can share part of about the William & Mary quarterly article because that one's much longer than it was supposed to be. But um, New Histories was really about the last 15 years of what I perceived to be landmark studies and where I thought uh, when I was writing it in 1920, one of those years, uh, where I thought that the the fields would go. Uh, and so I did sort of two things. The first thing I tried to do was to establish a maxim, perhaps, that I'm, I'm really happy to say uh, Brett Morris seized upon and quoted in, in uh, uh, Dismal Freedom. But it's the first sentence of the abstract, to try to create a definition or identify a definition for marinage that will uh, convey why this flowering of scholarship is important. And it's because marinage is the most pervasive form of fugitive slave community formation, resistance, negotiation, and enslaver accommodation, not only in the individual locations that we're looking at, Jamaica, the Great Dismal Swamp, Louisiana, Cuba, whatever have you, but in the history of the Atlantic world. And so then I had a second challenge, which was, really, can I write about that in 6,000 to 8,000 words? Or do I have to pick a part of the Atlantic world, a thematic approach to the Atlantic world? And that's how we get the Anglo-Atlantic world. Um, And so the rest of the essay, I hope, reads clearly enough to convey that Maroon studies don't actually really originate with historians at all, but it originates with a different set of scholars, uh, particularly anthropologists whose interests were in these descendant communities in the Caribbean. Uh, But as they began to publish their works, especially Richard Price, uh, who eventually made his way to Johns Hopkins, uh, where he made his career, um, really turned in the 70s through the 90s significant scholarly attention, not only to these descended communities, but also to the uh, challenges that grappling with the histories that these descendant communities reflect would present to historians and scholars of later generations, of those generations and then later generations. Uh, so that's sort of a little bit behind the veil on, on new histories. That's how it came to be. Global Warfare was supposed to be a single book review. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. It was an invitation to review Jason Sharple's The World That Fear Made, initially. Um, And so I began that work. I I read Jason Sharple's work. I really enjoyed it because I think he's absolutely right to uh, have reviewed, examined and reviewed the archives of slave conspiracy scares And I think he's really prescient in identifying the threads that are common between them and then also the different ways that we can study the temporal contextualizations, the local contextual, whatever, all that stuff. Um, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but um, Vince Brown's book was published about the time that I'm working on this. And so uh, Nick and I were talking and he asked if I thought it would be an interesting counterpoint 
or an interesting book to review alongside of the world that fear made. And I agreed that it would be. And at the time I was, because I'm a bibliophile, I'm a total bibliophile, by the way, I was reading Margoline Carr's Blood on the River already. I had already bought it. I literally bought it at uh, Barnes and Noble up the street from me here. <laughs> um, and so I proposed to Nick that I take the three and review them together. And this is before either Margoline or Vince's works were up for the major prize that they won. Um, and so that's how it started. And so what's the challenge there? How do you review three excellent studies with limited space? But also, how do you engage with the deeper historiographies that help to contextualize these three works? And that's where I began to think about my interests or or think a bit more carefully, I should say, about my interests in my long experience studying Black resistance, but also the scholarship of Black resistance. And that's where the uh, Black radical tradition piece comes into this particular review essay. It took Nick and I and the support that they have at the William & Mary Quarterly quite a bit of work to wend, rend the essay that we have here. <laughs> but I'm actually really proud of it because um, taken together, especially with new histories, it, it's really a reflection of just how many different, or, or maybe it's a, a sample is a better way to put it, of just how many different ways the history of Black resistance informs the broader histories that we study in the Atlantic world. Um, and the, it's all there for us to read already. It just takes, I don't know, years of study and years of being a bibliophile to be able to see it. So so take staying behind the veil for a second, how is... Um, you know, and, and this is moving towards a writing question just generally. Um, how do you okay, actually, but does your reading process change whether you're you know you're going to review and to, to write something like a review essay or a book review just generally? Um, how, how do you does your do, do your eyes look differently? Does your mind move differently? You mean I've always between been curious. You mean between a single book review or a book re- uh, book review essay? Or... Yeah, and, and, and actually, uh, the book review slash um, the the broader review essay versus you're just reading it because you might be teaching it in a class. I see. I see. Uh, yes, yes. They're they're two very distinct approaches to reading the same book. Uh, so when I assign a book for a class, I'm generally thinking about what broader themes I'm attempting to survey in a course or uh, have the participants of a seminar discuss and interrogate, right? Um, And so I'm either choosing that book for my own personal interest as it contributes to what we'll be discussing or as a counterpoint to those one way or the other. That's a bit more of a topical read than the sort of work it takes to be able to actually review a book. Uh, When it comes to the work of reviewing a book, that work for me actually begins in the back. It begins with the bibliography. It begins with the uh, list of footnotes. And that comprises a considerable amount of the work because uh, the responsibility as a reviewer is much more about, A, getting a sense of how this study is constructed so that, B, you can make a qualified articulation of what this book actually does 
and to what extent it accomplishes it. I've learned this more recently, and I think this is where the field of book review publishing is going anyway, than maybe 15 years ago. But it's much less about reviewing the quality of a particular book, because that's already not in question. It's already gone through the peer review process. It's already gone through the publishing process. If it has been peer reviewed successfully and published, there's some quality to it. And it's much more about trying to articulate for your book review reader why this book uh, matters in some ways and to what extent and to what conversations and to what topics, to what audiences it might contribute something of value. Um, And so that's the way that I approached both of these essays, but with very distinctive uh, strategies for it is a good way to put it for the review of books, which is just three books, that's very much more about trying to set up an historiographical foundation for how these books speak to the Black radical tradition or how they were shaped by, in some ways, the Black, the black radical tradition. Uh, and then you'll see segments of the essay where I review each book on its merits, and then I try to tie that in a conclusion. Uh, a broader historiographical survey is very much more about... <laughs> The, the initial draft is much longer because you're, you're doing that for every single thing that you list. But then you go back into the process and you're like, okay, what's the essential two or three lines here that give us a good sense of the essential takeaway in this book, but also contribute to the threads that you're trying to pull together in the essay. It's hard work. I don't know, to be honest with you, how I accomplished two of these in like two years. <laughs> and, and that's part of the reason why I no no but 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 to be honest like that's part of the like the the thrust of the question of to to write two of them in also the span of like you know two years but also we know what the last two years have been you know in the broader you know space too so you include you know your own book coming out too that that's uh, that's that's a lot of work but also it's good work um and, and it's also helpful for me in trying to think about you know there will come a time when i write you know more book reviews and and the review essay and to think about how does someone who has written two of the more important review essays that have come out in in recent times how did that brother do it so i appreciate you for that um and, and to 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 stay behind the veil of of how historians work um in, in this way so <laughs> Um, so, so you had once you had mentioned being tenured. So, congratulations to you on that. Uh, belated uh, congrats on that. Um, and and you had shown us your um, your your uh, thesis from uh, North Carolina. So, well, you showed me, I should say, not them. Showed me. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so thinking about the course of time and thinking about you know uh, how your processes have changed. How has your writing process changed, actually, if at all? between the dissertation and, you know, being a graduate school and now being a tenured professor um, at the University of Rhode Island? Sure, sure. Let me, let me say that at any stage, I would not wish my writing process on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me just start with that disclaimer. Uh, it's, it's, it is hectic because it is mainly driven by my inspiration and that inspiration comes in spurts, right? So to the point that you just made about what I was able to produce per se in the amount of time that I was able to produce, I had very distinct motivations, either invitations to write these essays, 
if I'm going to accept the invitation, I'm going to execute the essay. Or the um, motivation of being able to go up for tenure when my book was out. So that's part of behind the veil. It's it's those sort of external motivations that are much more about career in some ways than they are about the the um, the writing process itself. But here is also another plug for uh, Professor Alexander, because when I was a graduate student at Ohio State, there were often times that I found myself to be quite anxious and quite overwhelmed about the prospect of actually doing a dissertation and the way that one should do a dissertation or the writing process in general. In one of our many conversations, uh, she advised me, and she was sharing advice that she um, engaged with her colleagues, uh, of a methodology for doing it, a very basic one. Take a two-hour block in whatever day you decide that you're going to write, you can schedule it weekly, you can schedule it daily, however you want to do it, whatever works for your schedule, and use that two-hour block of time to produce whatever comes out in that two-hour block of time. It could be three sentences, it could be 20 pages, but use that two-hour block of time to do what it is that you intend to do with regard to writing as a broadly defined process, and then walk away for it, from it for the rest of the day, because the ideas will percolate. So you don't have to spend, unless you can, some people can, six hours trying to force it all out. But you can spend two hours, three hours, a very targeted, short, intense period of time to get out what you can, because that clears space for what's next to unspool. And then you can add to it the next time you have that block of time. And maybe it's three two-hour blocks of time within the course of a nine-hour day with an hour break in between. But the idea is to create targeted time uh, for writing and then targeted time for reflection because the reflection piece in writing is as important, if not more important than what you're able to put on a page. That changed significantly the way that I had approached writing uh, in any stage before, because before I really was that sort of traditional, I have to sit down at some point and get this done kind of person. And the other thing that I would add here is that while I was at Ohio State as a graduate student, I worked for three years in our uh, campus writing center. So I learned a lot of strategies for uh, reverse outlining, for uh, crafting topic sentences once you have a draft of something, uh, for targeted readings so that you can get the process of reflection going. Uh, so I had a lot of strategies in my proverbial toolkit, uh, and I still have those strategies in my toolkit. My life now is a little bit different because, honestly, I'm trying to find new motivations. Tenure can be for some, me, I'm talking about me, um, it's such a relief that it's like, uh, what do I want to do next? I don't know, nor do I have to decide right now. And so that's why I've been off into the archives again, engaging with new archives and very different archives than I've engaged before, because I'm hoping that as, especially when my sabbatical kicks in in the spring, um, I'll finally have the time to sit down and rediscover that sort of burning question or sets of questions uh, that first uh, were generative for me 15 year or so years ago.
Well, with that being said, do you think that you're going to write about the swamp again at some point? I think for now it'll feature in something that is at least a research essay. I haven't done one of those yet. Amazingly. Um, That's, you know, you think that's the traditional process. You go from thesis to dissertation to the research essay that signals what the book will be. I didn't do that. (laughs) I went went from thesis to dissertation to book to two historiographical essays with a host of book reviews to boot. Um, But I really still am fascinated with the history of Dismal Town and Dismal Plantation, particularly in the revolutionary period, because for me, as much as Brent and uh, Catherine will probably argue with me until we're all blue in the face, for me, that's the formative moment of the first, if not slave labor camp, maroon community. I see it very much more as a maroon community than I think others may, uh, in part because of what the primary record reveals to me, or at least what comes out of my interpretation of the primary record of that period. And I see that to be very different than the 19th century. And I think sometimes we conflate the two, although I'm sure Brent would argue that point uh, because, because he's, he's very much, um, well, I don't know. We haven't had the conversation yet. I should say that. But anyway, um, I don't think I'm done with the swamp just yet. Okay. I just now, don't know I was, what form. Gotcha. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was, I, I didn't want to uh, stop you there. I, I just was like, Hey, dude, I know my brother ain't about to leave the swamp already. Now, come on. You, you spent too much time <laughs> with the flies to leave just yet. Yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think I'm done yet, but I also have a couple of different book chapters. My brain is all over the place. Like I am such a non-traditional, traditional historian. It's nuts. But a couple of different book chapters that if I'm conceiving of a new book, which I am trying to do currently, the question is much more about um, what historiographical placement I'll attempt this time around. Will it be hewn more closely to the period of the American Revolution or will it be informed much more by the recent conversations that Serena Zabin and others have uh, started? I'm thinking here of the 2017 William and Mary Quarterly Journal of the Early Republic joint uh, edition, uh, whereby some of those questions prod us to think about the global or hemispheric or Atlantic world contexts for the American Revolution. And I'm still grappling with this, but I really do think that the history of Marinage and the Great Dismal Swamp is an excellent entry point to that. It's just a matter of executing some of the writing projects that I have now and then having a moment to take a step back and take stock of where I am. Amen. And uh, we'll be uh, co-travelers in that because, um, you know, the Dismal Swamp and and, uh, uh, Petit Marinage in particular is something that I'm really interested in uh, for for the current work, Um, especially when we think about, um, you know, with what's honestly just just been going on. Um, You know, we see what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi. We see... Um, the the new um, documentary Katrina baby Katrina's babies, um, I believe on HBO. And so thinking about, you know, the, going to the, to the Black Ecologies bit as well. Thinking about in a time of catastrophe, how how are Black folks experiencing this world, um, specifically in the American Revolution, where you see so many experiences, where um, you see the destruction of Norfolk, the burning of Norfolk you know, mm-hmm. multiple times in the war and mm-hmm. that being the catalyst for black people to, to become free 
But then also you see, um, and I, I wrote about this with the piece um, that was in the same volume with uh, Professor Golden, where you have um, a black man who is apprehended during the set in 1775, 1776, and is effectively sent to the lead mines. And, and Sean Gallagher has written about this as well, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it's through the ecological devastation in the lead mines of the central portion, I believe the Southwest portion of Virginia, that he then um, uh, petitions for his freedom, I believe in 1783. And so thinking about the relationship between that, um, ecological dev devastation and black freedom um, is, is something that I'm thinking about as well with uh, the fourth chapter I'm working on, which is why I'm trying to get this fifth one done so I can move to the one that's really like, you know, <laughs> theming. But, um, but yeah, so so we'll definitely be, be talking about that more. And so I see the time is getting short. So let me ask you this question. Sure. Where do you see the field of slavery studies and the study of enslaved people? Those are not the same thing. Um, where do you see... Mm -hmm these conjoined in a way um, uh, fields going? Oh, the future question. That was always the most difficult to answer. Um, I spoke with Jim Ambusky for the Washington Library and he asked me a similar question and I did my best to highlight a number of threads that um, were top of mind for me during that conversation. Um, so I'll plug that conversation here, um, and I'll speak in a more targeted way in this context. Um, I think, for one, the study of enslaved people as one distinct avenue, and slavery studies more broadly as another distinct avenue, um, stand to be very much more enriched by all of the insights and studies that are flowering um, in gender and women's studies, uh, at the nexus of gender and women's studies and, and history. Um, the books are many to, to list here, the articles even more so. Um, but top of mind currently for me is Tamika Nunley's book on uh, Black women in, in Washington, D.C.'s 19th century uh, uh, context, and her article, the broader article, on slavery legislation in Virginia from the 18th century into the 19th century. Uh, her, her work comes to mind to me first, probably because we're on like multiple committees, strangely, uh, for different things. Um, or we're working in concentric circles, perhaps is a better way to put that. Um, Stephanie E. Jones Rogers, they were her property, although not directly uh, central or, or placing at the center of the analysis, the enslaved people per se, more so about the records of those who owned enslaved people, is reflective of another avenue that I see uh, as very fruitful. Um, and then more broadly, there are excellent, excellent, excellent takes on the earlier periods of the transatlantic slave trade. I'm thinking here Jen Morgan and Herman Bennett's recent books on how we can contextualize the 15th and 16th century contexts of everything from reckoning with slavery, with the insights of gender and uh, 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 other sorts of studies, Jen Morgan's recent book, uh, to Herman's book, uh, African Kings and Black Slaves, which very f compellingly 
reorients the way that we consider how the whole thing got started. Uh, the question of dominion, uh, the, the earliest tact and negotiation that Christian European traders had to take up with indigenous African peoples or people uh, uh, in Islamic contexts in West and West Central Africa. Uh, his, his book is mainly about West Africa. But from them also, collectively, we get this idea that I think is also important for us to consider. And that is, even when the record is thin, threadbare, it is just as important to linger with the sources that you do have more so than perhaps it is to privilege pushing past a single record in the effort to compile an empirical source base. Both are important, that is to say. Having uh, an empirical source base makes the project of history, uh, (laughs) it facilitates a different process for writing history, I should say. It doesn't make it any easier, but it creates a situation where you have uh, a wider range or multiple sources or a depth of sources, perhaps, from which you can narrate. But lingering with the few sources that you do have, that's how you get to these histories of enslaved and Af- free African women or the earliest traders and agents of African uh, 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 kings and queens or Maroons, who often don't even appear in the records. You have to linger, that is to say, with the records of runaways or with the records of of courts marshals or militia in order to even get close to the experience of those who spent lives hiding in swamps and forests and mountain vales and others. Amen. So I think that in some ways is where the field is going. (laughs) <laughs> Amen. And, and I'm, I appreciate you for bringing the mountains in because um, my the next thing that I'm really working on is actually about, um, you know, thinking about mountain marinage in southern Appalachia. Thinking about how did enslaved people, um, how did the mountains figure into um, their survival strategies of enslaved people? Uh, and that builds all my work working with Park Service. Um, so, you know, a little plug for that. Um, so, you know, with that being said, my brother, I really appreciate you. You know, I respect your time and I know you got to run and, uh, Lord knows I got to as well. Sitting down for this long, uh, you know, you, you're saying that you're, you feel, you feel your years and as a new 30, as, uh, new to the, to the 30 year old, uh, uh, you know, decade, I'm feeling it a little bit too. So <laughs> I really happy, happy belated, you. by the way, I know it was recent. Yeah, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I appreciate you brother. And, uh, once again, y'all, we've had the amazing opportunity to talk to Dr. Marcus Nevius, uh, associate, tenured professor at the University <laughs> of Rhode Island. And congratulations again on that feat. And uh, th- congratulations on staying on here for uh, over two hours uh, as well. So, you know, <laughs> not exactly a how- Hey, man, we're we reaching towards it, man. So uh, I just want to really say thank you um, to, to you, Marcus, for um, your, your, you know, the brotherhood that we're building, man. And, um, you know, brother scholars out here in the game and, um, and listeners, thank y'all for rocking with me. We've been at it from Dr. Nikki Taylor and Dr. Shawande Musa came to, you know, none other than Dr. Marcus Nevius. And so, um, you know, I hope to be here for another five years and more, uh, working with, uh, Marshall and the folks of the new books network, but, you know, 
nevertheless, I appreciate y'all for, for listening and for, for engaging. And so if y'all made it to this far, congratulations to y'all as well. <laughs> Especially if you went all the way through, uh, you might have to do it uh, piecemeal. Uh, but y'all, thank you again so much for the opportunity uh, to, to, to be in your earwaves and hope y'all have a great day. And uh, once again, I'm Adam McNeil, your host of New Books in African-American Studies. As I always say to end, over and